Well, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Roger Horowitz. I am the, uh, the director of the Center for the History of Business Technology and Society. And I'm here in another episode of the Hagley History Hangout, where we bring to you uh, interviews with people who have made use of our collections and written interesting works that have come out of that, uh, out of that effort. Um, some of the interviews in the Hagley History Hangout are about research in progress. Others, such as the one today, are about books that have been published and written from our materials, and it's our way of making you aware of the kind of scholarship that's afforded by Hagley. Uh, with us is Samuel Milner, uh, who has written a book called Robbie Peter to Pay Paul, Power, Products, and Productivity in Modern America, which comes from his Yale uh, PhD. Samuel, thank you for joining us for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, let me just start off by asking you to tell us about the book. Uh, what is its main argument? Uh, what are you trying to say in this, in this story? Sure. So Robbing Peter to Pay Paul examines how corporate management has understood its ability to distribute income to its stakeholders and the ways that public policy responds to the exercise of that discretion. And the book focuses historically on the mid 20th century. And it's an era with a lot of strong parallels and relevance for today with inflation at its highest in 40 years. We hear a lot about the role of management and its responsibilities in the economy. We see from the White House uh, charges that the meat industry or the gasoline industry are raising prices irresponsibly. We see some of the highest labor unrest in a generation to claim a larger share of the pie. And this is all against the backdrop, even before the recent inflation began, about whether corporate management should operate for the shareholders or, as the Business Roundtable suggested in 2019, whether it should strive for an economy that works for all Americans, consumers, workers, the environment, and also investors. And when we just... Go ahead. Go ahead, Samuel. Oh, that, sure. And when we discuss these modern trends, we often look back to the mid-20th century. It's an era in which historians have argued that management uh, was not just focused on shareholders who were generally dispersed retail investors, not sophisticated institutional investors today, uh, but management had to square off against big business, excuse me, big labor and big government in the form of regulation. And because of this, historians have argued that uh, management felt so constrained in the workplace, it had to try and undermine that New Deal order through political activism or uh, social outreach. And in my book, I challenge that view. I argue that management historically uh, had a lot of autonomy from its stakeholders because it controlled the pricing function. Uh, pricing was a safety valve. If the demands of labor against profits were too great or regulatory costs were too great, management could raise prices and thereby uh, paper over that conflict over distribution of income by protecting profits and long run capital. Of course, management understands you raise prices too much, uh, that's going to be self-defeating in the long run. And so what the book does is it explores how management in this mid-century tried to balance these goals uh, without having to resort to higher prices, which economists and, and policymakers at the time associated with uh, inflation. Uh, much of the way we hear much discourse today. Uh, let me go back. Uh, sure. you, you're, the word stakeholders is mm -hmm. bandied about freely these days. Uh, and you explore that a lot in your book. Tell me what your conception of the stakeholders are. You, not today, 
but back to, we're talking about the 50s and the 60s, which is sort of the operative core of your book. Who are the stakeholders that management is engaging with? And what is the relative, what is the relative power over management? Sure. Right. When we talk about stakeholders, we usually mean people who are affected by uh, corporate decisions, right? So maybe the most influential theory of the stakeholders in the period I look at is that of Lemuel Boulware, who's the important General Electric executive. And he has the idea that the corporation uh, serves what he calls contributor claimants. And management is hired and works for the share owners, but there's other contributor claimants to the corporation. There are suppliers who sell products. There are consumers who buy products. There are workers who contribute their labor for a wage and benefits. There are communities who rely on uh, facilities and investment by companies. And even he might say uh, the government, which relies on corporate taxes. And all of these stakeholders are impacted by uh, what businesses do. Today, we might add the environment or some other type of ESG goals as well as part of a stakeholder vision. And when we talk about stakeholders, what, uh, a stakeholder government, what we mean is this idea that uh, management should either balance its responsibilities to shareholders with these other corporate goals, or uh, the shareholders should just be one among many different groups that enter into the calculus about how do we pay out uh, what we've taken in? How do we, you know, do we cut dividends in order to invest in the environment, perhaps? Do we raise wages and cut share buybacks, right? These are the types of ideas we might say uh, are promoting stakeholders. You could say they're also, you know, in the long run, they're just going to benefit shareholders too. That's the conventional view we take. Uh, but this would be a little more institutionalized. We are actually saying you know, we need to reward our workers, we need to reward our consumers, and not just we are working for the benefit of our investors. Now, the, the, uh, you contrast this with a contemporary view, the focus on, on shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, but going again, going back to the 50s and 60s, um, let's contextualize this for the audience sure. watching. How powerful were the investors, the owners of the capital in the firm, over management at that time? And contrast that with, with today. Sure. So in the 1950s, 1960s, investors are pretty powerless uh, compared to today. And the idea is uh, the investors back then tend to be retail, small scale holders. They're dispersed. They're not able to coordinate well. And as long as the companies are doing well, and you know, for most of this period, it's a pretty strong economy in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, and as long as there's no major mismanagement or criminal dealings, uh, investors are going to be happy with corporate progress, right? Today, it's very different. Today, we see institutional investors who exercise a very large authority over the board of directors. Uh, and then that board of directors then, you know, selects management. Back in the 1950s, 1960s, the board of directors, um, you know, who are, you know, the Hagley, right, Delaware corporate law, these are the individuals responsible legally for overseeing the company, uh, the board of directors in the 1950s, 60s are either pretty passive or they're dominated by managerial insiders. So it's not uncommon when I talk about management uh, in this period, I mean, you know, the CEO of the corporation, the chief financial officer, maybe um, some important vice presidents, they are the ones who are calling the shots. We don't see the shareholder representatives 
uh, taking place, unless it happens to be the case that the CEO is also the chairman of the board, which is, which is not uncommon in that period. Today, uh, there's a much more focus on independent directors, independent from the corporation itself, that gives shareholders a much stronger say of oversight and authority over what management does. Well, I asked you to develop this, Samuel, because I think it's uh, worth emphasizing that one element of your book is a different nature of corporate governance at the time, not uh, formal in the sense of the rules are different, but practical in terms of the autonomy of, of uh, management. Um, and this is important when, you, when in terms of the power of the of management to determine issues of prices, they have a, they have a, lot of, a lot more autonomy, it seems, then than you're saying they have now to make those kinds of decisions. Is, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I talk about in, in the book, it's a lot of I talk about the economic structure. Um, you have oligopoly structures versus competitive markets. Well, you could say the same for the capital market that you have uh, these companies, these corporations, they're publicly traded, but they are much more autonomous from the market. Today, there is a much more developed market for corporate control. There's much more competition to be in control of uh, the corporate decisions of the board of directors. So management certainly is going to have a lot more autonomy from investors in the mid 20th century. Okay, so we got the investor management relationship. Again, since management is your focus, I'm trying to circle around that. Talk to us about labor. I mean, the 1950s remains the high point of labor density in the US economy. About 1955, about 35% of the workforce is unionized. Uh, and that's even more significant than you might realize, people who are watching, because that, that includes most of the workers in the public sector who are not unionized in the 1950s, and while they are later on in the 1960s. So a substantial, uh, much completely different world than we have now. So what is management and labor doing these days? How is management engaging with labor? I think this is a critical part of your book, so I want you to, to bring this out. Sure. Right. And this is, um, you know, part of the problem with this is that you have, you know, the pre-World War II, you have the New Deal. It's not until the late 1930s that you even start to see labor unions getting hold in uh, mainstream industry. Uh, I mean, obviously you had had smaller, you know, the garment industry, small scale type things, but it's really only in the late 1930s, the Supreme Court upholding the National Labor Relations Act. And then so coming out of World War II, management realizing, well, it looks like this is here to stay. It looks like uh, we will have to live with organized labor. And so the question is, how do you uh, take that into account when you're planning your strategic outcomes? You don't wanna strike or the threat of a strike every year. Uh, that's going to disrupt your production. It's going to make buyers concerned. So it's not just about paying out wages. It's, it's also about, well, how do we make sure uh, our company's still gonna be able to work? if we have a labor movement. Now, by the late 1940s, uh, labor has begun to accept its role as well, saying, um, not always, but in many cases, you know, we can get better benefits for our workers. It's a bread and butter unionism. Uh, that key point is often said to be coming out of World War II, 1946, the United Auto Workers go to General Motors and say, uh, you know, we're negotiating on wages, but we want you to show us your financial books. We want you to tell us, uh, you know, prove to us your pricing situation. And we're going to take that into account when we, you know, bargain on price, on wages. And GM beats that back. And as a result, it becomes much more about 
management makes a decision on prices, and then it goes to wages. I mean, it goes to the collective bargaining table with an offer on, you know, how much can we afford to pay you uh, going back against with labor. So you see this regularization of labor relations in this period. I think the main takeaway that I say in my book is that management knows that if you were just going to be in a competitive economy, it would make sense to pay labor, uh, at least over the long run, this idea that you can afford the national increase in productivity growth. General Motors institutionalizes this in 1948. They're the first company to directly say, we are going to pay you, uh, it's about 2% every year initially, and we're going to pay you that because that's the national increase for labor productivity in the long run. That's what the economy can afford to pay labor uh, without raising costs and prices. Now, the problem is that's what, now labor hears that, they say, well, that's what we want for one year. If we want us to give up the right to strike for multiple years, you're going to have to give us more. And, you know, if you're a labor union, you say, and, you know, benefits, pension plans, health care, it's not necessarily fair to count those the same way you count money, right? There's some type of corporate maybe obligation. And at the very least, these are going to be paid out in the future. They're not being paid to us today, even if you are setting that money aside. And of course, labor also says, you know, we go to the store, we don't pay in real dollars, we pay in nominal dollars. So if the cost of meat goes up, we want more money from the company uh, to, in order to pay that higher cost of living. So there's these two competing views of what should labor be owed. And that drives a lot of the book is, is how you can reconcile these two. Uh, do you need some type of change in the economic structure? Do you need some type of government constraint? Or can you really work with labor and, and uh, reach some type of deal about how you keep the company competitive without uh, having labor pay uh, in terms of inflation? Well, I mean, people have, have worked over that terrain a lot mm -hmm. and, and being here at Hagley, you know, because of the collections we have about business trade associations, I, I've talked to a lot of them. Um, and this is, this is an interesting wrangle there. Um, how much impact does this tension have on, in your book, in your, in your view, in the 50s and the 60s? Uh, how much does this tendency to use prices as an escape valve for wage increases impact the economy, impact and drive inflation? You know, this is a, it's a car before the horse question, right? Because if you ask someone in 1955 or 1965, they would say, oh, absolutely. You have these companies that are raising prices. You have these unions which are raising wages. And that is the cause of inflation. And we as a society must suffer when these irresponsible collections of power uh, raise their wages, raise their prices. Um, the wage price spiral must be ended in order to stop inflation. And I think today we, we look at that, and we say, that's a little strange because isn't inflation either monetary, right? The Federal Reserve is responsible for raising inflation. And when we look back on this period, we see a lot of missteps, um, especially starting in the mid 1960s from the Federal Reserve, which ultimately lead to inflation. Or uh, inflation is a political story. This idea that uh, you know, unions and businesses are taking advantage of the government, knowing they will not allow unemployment, knowing they will not allow companies the price themselves out of the market. And so the government will accommodate a higher wage and price level, even if otherwise there would just be a shift in relative prices. So 
I, I think it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy with modern economics today saying it's probably not correct to say that labor and management created inflation in this period. But certainly to understand the political economy, if we want to say, why is the Federal Reserve acting the way it did in this period? Why is the White House acting the way it did in this period? Why are expectations of inflation in the private marketplace acting the way they do? You have to view it as they did at the time, which is through this lens of a wage price spiral and cost push inflation. I, what's, what's odd about that, I mean, I appreciate your saying, well, that's not really the case, even if people thought it was. What's odd about that concern is that, in fact, inflation is extremely low mm -hmm. in the 1950s and the 1960s. I mean, at the end of the 60s, it's starting to poke its head up there. But the averages are the kind of averages that we've had for, you know, until the, until the recent, you know, pandemic, you know, supply shortages and all that in the range of, you know, one to two and a half percent for 20 years. You know, <laughs> so that's a very long time. So, you know, in terms of these pressures on your, on your, on your, in your story there, um, are you saying that it's, it, to some extent, this, the, the, the dangers, the price issue is illusory? This is being used because firms don't seem to, in fact, be gouging the public in terms of price increases and unions and, and, the, and there's a substantial increase, a real increase in blue collar wages over the 20 years. This is when the blue collar population moves in the middle class. And it doesn't seem to me to be manifested in any particular way in inflation. So in your story, though, you emphasize the way prices are the escape valve. Well, is that discourse or is that something which in fact is taking place that these price increases are damaging a, a non-unionized people in that era sure you know it depends it depends where we look right because certainly you know certain industries uh prices are stable you look at the auto industry quality adjusted real auto prices are pretty much steady for about two decades you look at the steel industry and nominal steel prices are going to be going up six to eight percent or four to six percent every year, uh, pretty much like clockwork, right? I think today we might say, you know, it's a little bit today we might say the pharmaceutical industry seems to raise prices a lot, uh, but we don't see other industries necessarily raising prices. And we don't view that as inflation today. Um, now, back in the, the, the mid-50s, though, they do see that as inflation for a few reasons. Number one, you do have this persistent price creep, and it's not constant. You're right. Um, but it does come and go at certain moments. And there's especially this moment in the late, uh, mid to late 1950s, where uh, the economy is kind of going into recession and prices still keep to be going up. And this seems to be, uh, and you read a lot of these explanations in the late 1950s, and it's the idea that, well, there is a type of creeping inflation. It's not a hyperinflation yet, but it's this result of an excess of unit labor costs. Um, so, you know, depending on who starts the fire, right, labor raises prices, or excuse me, labor raises wages ahead of productivity, the company's unit labor costs will go up, the company passes that on, and, you know, that's the price creep, it's slow, it's steady, the fear is it will spiral, it will snowball if people begin to think this is going to be the case. Um, there's also this idea as well that even if some industries, automotive, for instance, are productive enough to afford those higher uh, costs without raising prices, a less productive industry like steel uh, will have to take that into account. Excuse me. And then steel, of course, raising its own prices is going to impact a large sloth of the economy after that. 
So inflation's small, but it's viewed as a very big problem, even when it's this slow creeping inflation. Um, of course, by the time we get up to the mid to late 1960s, when we actually do begin to see inflation going up, uh, it becomes a much more pertinent issue, um, certainly to uh, in terms of what the government's going to do about it. Well, I, mean, I ask you this, uh, not so much to push you on it, but to relate this to an, another vein of scholarship, which is the emergence of sort of con con you know, clear conservatism among the business mm -hmm. community, which is a, a proceeding parallel to your story. It's not part of your story, but obviously you're, you're aware of this literature. Uh, Kim Phillips Fine and a number of mm -hmm. other people at Waterhouse. Um, and what you're suggesting is that much of this concern about prices was discourse. In other words, there were arguments made about it that were in excess of the actual impact on the economy. Um, and that connects with the rise of conservative movements. Bulwar is part of that effort there, who want to argue against the influence of labor in the economy. They resent it, as you referred to, they resent the power of uh, labor, they resent the contracts and all that. And so to what extent is this issue of inflation being used in a, how to put it, in a, in a functional way by critics of labor in excess of its impact on uh, the actual economy? You know, I don't, I, I, when I, one of the reasons I wrote this book is I think that we view management in this period so heavily as this conservative business movement and we lose sight of the fact that, look, they're not paying, you know, they don't pay the bills by giving speaking engagements uh, to the John Birch Society. They get paid by making sure the company's doing well. Well, theoretically, right? Low, low shareholder oversight. So they get paid regardless. But um, I, I think this is very important because when you look at the actual how collective bargaining happens and the lead up to collective bargaining. So one thing I talk about a lot in the book is businesses working with economists in the 1950s to try and figure out what is productivity? How do we measure productivity? Should we use total factor productivity? Should we use uh, labor productivity? It's actually very interesting, total factor productivity, which is the measure where you basically take in all the quantifiable inputs into the economy and you see how much output you get for that. So it takes into account labor and capital. Um, there's a lot, that's, developed in the mid-1950s by John Kendrick, the economist. And it's, he's actually working very closely with management. And you, know, you could say, well, that's a conservative story. That's a story about uh, the business community trying to push back against you know, post-war economics. Uh, but I think it's a much more practical story. I think it's a story that management says, we're going into bargaining. We need to have statistics to show to labor at the bargaining table to buttress our arguments. Um, you know, we need to know too, for our own corporate planning, we need to be able to measure this. We need to know what our costs are. We need to know what our productivity is. So it's a much more bread and butter story, I think, uh, for a lot of this. The conservative story, incidentally, where I do think that uh, business, because for most of this period, business is able to do a wage price policy voluntarily. They don't need, or they don't want the government involved uh, up through the 1960s. Where that changes, I think, is in the late 1960s. There's changes uh, to labor law from the Johnson and Kennedy years. Uh, there's a change in import penetration, which makes companies less willing to tolerate strikes in the case of the steel industry. There's a new worker militancy, uh, especially in the case of General Motors. Uh, and it shows these companies are voluntary efforts 
aren't so effective anymore. These efforts, which looked really good in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, are not getting us the same wage price results. And so businesses then turn to the Nixon administration actually wanting wage and price control, saying, you know, could you replicate what we have been trying to do voluntarily all these years? They very quickly realized that even the Nixon administration um, is going to be somewhat more favorable on wages than it will be towards profits and prices, at least what management expected. Uh, but I think that's, I, so I, if, if there is going to be a political story, I date it much later uh, I think than, than many other historians who view business as social actors and not as business economic actors. Well, uh, you, you bring us to the 60s and the 70s. So let me ask you a couple of other issues that, that to consider. Um, a lot of stress is placed in literature on a couple of key exogenous shocks to the system. Mm -hmm. Vietnam War, oil boycott. Um, balance those shocks to the system with your story of the wage of the of essentially the, the, the wage price balance getting unhinged and prices moving at a, at a level that becomes unsustainable for the firms and for the public. Sure, right. So what we have by that point is I think it's becoming very clear to management that uh, all these, right, for the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, management saying we need to keep wages in line with productivity so we can stabilize prices. By this point, once you start to get these shocks, management's starting to realize, you know, you cannot say private market power is the cause of inflation. And that goes for labor as well as management. I think they're beginning to realize, you know, there's been no increase in labor density over this period. Um, and just like there hasn't been much for, for management. So we don't see, uh, you know, the best thing the government can do now is put its own fiscal monetary house in order, right? And certainly the expansion of government spending uh, in the Johnson years, uh, one of these main drivers, and we see management saying, you know, as long as the government is going to keep fueling inflation this way, our efforts to try and balance wages and prices and productivity, they're not going to work because there's always going to be a cost of living on top of that. Someone's going to have to raise prices to adjust. Someone, you know, we don't want to have to absorb that into our profits. We would like labor to share some of that burden. Um, that's what they hope wage controls in the 1970s will do. They don't do it very effectively. And so management says, if you cannot get your own house in order, uh, let us be free to balance things as we would like. So I think that's the main influence there is this recognition that uh, we're starting to get to the, the modern day concern where, you know, what is inflation? Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It is the result of political pressures. It is the result of Federal Reserve policy uh, in response to these shocks. Uh, so it sounds to me like you're sympathetic to the argument that it's the reliance and deficit financing uh, when the Vietnam War hits that generates this monetary inflation. I think there's a lot of pressures. I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not the, you know, I'm, I, I've worked with Federal Reserve archives. I'm not the Federal Reserve historian, but certainly I think when you, when you look at the monetary history of this period and you look at the political pressure at the Federal Reserve, especially um, the late years with uh, Bill Miller, excuse me, with, with um, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, William Martin in the late 1960s and then Arthur Burns and then of course, Bill Miller, um, you do see a number of missteps, which, you know, today monetary historians will, will go back and say, you know, this is what's driving the inflation. Um, you know, 
you were trying to blame it. And one reason we couldn't solve the inflation was because it took so long to realize firms and unions were not driving that inflation. Right. Um, so that was clouding their vision. Well, that's a, that's a good clarification. In other words, you know, you're not blaming labor. No. We're trying to get more wages. In, in a way, what you have is an equilibrium, you know, that is upset in the late, in the late 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. Another factor, another shock in that fact, you mentioned uh, imports uh, mm -hmm. that are going on there, that um, literature, I mean, Judith Stein talks about this a lot about the steel industry. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with Stein's mm -hmm. arguments and all that. Uh, in the in the auto industry, of course, you have the um, you know, Japanese firms, Volkswagen coming in there. Um, of course, textiles, you have that. Mm -hmm. To what extent is this the firm's own doing? That's my questions there. And as it imports there, you have all sorts of controversies over over tariffs, which of course would raise prices. Is this something that's exogenous to the firms or is this something that the firms are partly responsible for, for letting happen? Or is it the government, as Judith Stein argues, it's, it's mm -hmm. the government? No, I think, you know, it's very interesting because when you look in the mid 1950s, I mean, there's this argument, right, that, that American industry was caught off guard by imports and uh, they were too sluggish, they were too insulated for too long, the Japanese were developing to captured markets, the Germans, the Europeans were capturing markets, and Americans woke up too late. And it's very interesting that the steel industry, by the really mid-1950s, they're on notice. They know that, uh, you know, it's low value-added products, barbed wire, for instance, uh, but they can see the market penetration. And they know, look, if we keep raising prices, this is going to be bad in the long run. But we need the capital today in order to invest in order to uh, compete in the long run. So how do you get that capital? Well, you could raise prices um, and that's you know, the strategy of the mid fifties, but you know, they understand that's self-defeating. So that's what motivates, I think, a lot of these efforts to uh, keep wages in line with productivity is to say, how do we get the capital we need to invest in the long run? Well, you restrain your costs and then you can you know, grow internally uh, without having to raise profits or raise, raise prices. Um, now, it's not very effective. A lot of that goes to the choices they make, the technologies they pick. Um, you know, maybe, maybe in hindsight, they could have done better. Maybe they made the best decisions they, they could. Um, you know, one, one thing I will say, though, is when we do get to the tariffs, there's this great moment I love in the late 1960s where the Johnson administration is trying to keep steel prices in line. And uh, they say, you know, well, if you raise prices, we might have to rethink some of these negotiations we have with the Europeans and the Japanese about steel imports. And you see prices, uh, there's price precisions, there's been a lot of shading to try and meet uh, competition and to eliminate the shading, there's an actual cut in list prices, uh, it's very unusual. Uh, a couple months later, they finalized these voluntary import restrictions, and you see those uh, price cuts rescinded and the prices go back up. I think it's pretty clear what was going on there. And, and by uh, certainly by the 1970s, 1980s, you see trade policy uh, certainly supporting higher prices uh, and then higher wages as a result, as, as you probably should. So I'm sympathetic to the argument that uh, what we needed was, if you really were concerned about these problems and this distributive problem, uh, import competition is going to be very useful 
uh, not just because it's going to put down their prices, uh, pressure on prices, but because it's going to help transform the domestic economy into a more competitive marketplace. Uh, and that's going to have a lot of benefits. I mean, Stein argues that what would have been a difference for steel is a federal R&D funding. And we mm -hmm. have people actually had me looking at some of these materials and efforts to generate federal money that would have helped the steel industry engage in the kind of investment that it, it is. And the argument David Stein makes is at a certain point, uh, steel is, is stuck because they simply can't generate the enormous capital to have basic, to have new technology. They're, they're not getting into this for the audience. There's, there's a new technology that's being used in Japan and Germany, which we're very slow to get into. Right. Uh, and Stein argues, well, if they had been given a federal policy to support that, that might've made for a different outcome. Are you sympathetic that there was a way in which the federal government could have helped ameliorate that kind of, uh, uh, if you will, that kind of crisis that steel was in? I mean, you could have, um, I mean, certainly when you look at the 1950s, um, you know, coming out of the Korean War and, you know, the government had given favorable depreciation schedules to the steel industry, um, you know, the Kennedy tax cuts in the early 1960s, 1962, you know, one of those big benefits is excel, uh, changing depreciation schedules to help companies reinvest more. I mean, just as a policy matter, I don't know you know, in terms of the steel industry specifically versus industry as a whole, you know, should the government be backing individual companies or not? Uh, you know, that, that's, I, I'm going to put that aside for now. But I, I do think, uh, you know, what I always find very interesting, of course, is that you have this major shakeout of the steel industry in the 1980s, 1990s, under the pressure of competition and, uh, you know, the Reagan recessions and all these economic pressures. And it's only in these uh, recovery from these super downturns. I mean, you see unemployment in the steel industry go from you know, half a million to under 100,000 in the span of a decade. And you see major plant shutterings. Even with all that, you see a growth of productivity, which you would expect if you're shutting down obsolete production and you're, you're concentrating in more productive assets. So uh, I, don't, I, I think in the long run, if, if your goal was to save the steel industry, you could have done more. I think if your goal was to create a more competitive steel industry on an international basis, uh, you know, before we get up into, you know, accusations of dumping and, and you know, uh, trade violations, and those are going to be more of the last couple decades than, than the mid-century. Uh, I'm not sure what, I, I, the government could have done more. I don't know if that would have been a wise decision uh, from okay. my standpoint. But, well, I'm not trying to, you're not trying to make policy 40 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Years. Again, part of what I'm doing here is other people have written about this. So I'm asking your take on some of some of the arguments yeah, yeah, yeah. there. I mean, where this becomes important is when we get towards you know towards the end of your story, the late '70s, early '80s, uh, and really what comes is this transformation of the American economy, uh, the deregulation uh, that opens up uh, competition, but in areas that, that wasn't there before. Um, you know, we have the story. You have Hagley has the records of MCI uh, mm -hmm. Communications, which of course goes after AT and T and changes the, the pricing enormously for communications things. Um, and tell us your take about how that happens. I mean, just tell me, this is sort of, this is sort of your, where your story comes together. What happens and what's good and what's bad in the kind of resolution of this crisis? Sure, right. So we have, you know, I think the normal story is, you know, Ronald Reagan comes in, Ronald Reagan deregulates, uh, Ronald Reagan targets labor unions, uh, you get a change in labor law, which shifts the pendulum back in management's favor to a degree it 
hadn't been since at least the 1950s, if ever, uh, if, in the modern era. Um, so that's one story. I think, you know, what I like to focus on is the fact that you have a, you know, certainly a shift in Federal Reserve policy, Paul Volcker, um, and monetary restraint, aided, you know, let's acknowledge every theory here, right, aided by uh, a favorable supply shocks in the mid-1980s on oil and other things to try and keep prices down, but certainly I think some type of Federal Reserve policy helping. Um, I think what I really see as the main benefit, though, is I do see the structural change in the marketplace in the 1980s that, um, you know, for, for, you know, a lot of what the book's about is trying to control the outcomes, accepting the structure as a given, and how to manipulate these outcomes, right? Saying we have big business, we have big labor, how do you uh, force them to act responsibly? Well, now in the 1980s, big labor uh, can change, you know, it's possible to think, well, maybe you can have industry without labor, uh, organized labor. Um, you know, what you're going to replace it with is another story. I, in my book, I talk a lot about the Japanese style human resources that we see with, you know, uh, Japanese companies coming to America and Nucor and some other uh, nimble competitors. Um, but I think that's the operative word, competitors. I think that's what my story, what I like to focus on is that uh, you don't see these oligopolies anymore. Toyota comes in and starts to undercut the pricing strategies of the big three automakers. Um, you have in the steel industry, you have Nucor and the mini mills uh, with new production methods that are undercutting um, you know, the old uh, integrated steel industry. And certainly you have foreign competition. You see this in a lot of different industries. And I think to me, that's the major part of the story is that it's just a different economy we have now. Um, the regulation, the regulatory story is part of that, certainly, um, you know, especially in some industries, right? Utilities, transportation. Um, so I think to me, it's, it's a structural change. Okay. Well, um, before we go, I want you to talk to me a little bit about the collections you found here at Hagrid sure. that were useful to you. Tell us what was, what was great about, or well, tell us what was useful about the material you have. I don't want to judge it that way. Sure. No, I mean, there are a lot of great collections at Hagley, absolutely. Um, you know, certainly a lot of the individual papers of corporate leaders. So, you know, Donaldson Brown and some of the other General Motors executives talking about, you know, those important labor uh, negotiations coming out of World War II. How should we put, you know, our labor strategy? How should we tie in wages with productivity? How does this fit in with our overall corporate strategy? Uh, you know, you're, you're not just looking at the board minutes, you're looking at how the board members are talking to one another, board members, internal management here. Um, and then there's also, you know, some other great collections, you know, obviously a lot of DuPont collections, uh, DuPont executives. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily talk about DuPont as one of my case studies, the way I do steel and autos in the book. But I think DuPont is very useful because you see the diffusion of these ideas throughout the business community. You get these great letters back and forth. Hey, remember when we were at the country club the other week playing golf and you mentioned your people had a handle on this productivity idea. Can I send my guys over to watch this presentation you mentioned? And you just track and you see how many companies come to DuPont to watch this slide presentation on productivity. And the Hagley has a copy of the script or a summary of the script. So I was able to read that. Uh, and it's just, you see, you know, US Steel, Ford, National Association of Manufacturers, all these groups coming to watch this presentation at DuPont talking about these ideas. And you realize, um, you know, it's, we'd often talk about the National Association of Manufacturers, Chamber of Commerce. Obviously those are at the Hagley, very useful as well. I really like these papers just to see 
a little less uh, you know, formalized, but still important networks of ideas going between uh, these business leaders, uh, not necessarily as political or, or you know, conservative ideas, but really just, you know, how can I make my business better? Yeah, I mean, one of the best parts to me of the, of the, of the, of the NAM papers are the conferences. Mm-hmm. Where you don't, you may not know what people were talking about between each other, you know, in between sessions, but they have listed people who attend those sessions. Exactly. And, that, and then would, so then you can track the dissemination of ideas and how people apply those ideas. Of course, may vary, but that's where the exposure ideas comes from. And I've not heard someone talk about Dupont's role really as an influ- as, a, as an influencer in that in that kind of world. Today we call them influencers. Back then they called yeah. them, we called this influential. Yeah, there, there's this group called the Employer Labor's Relation Information Committee, and um, it's, it's hard to track down, but, but the papers are there. If you look through DuPont, they were one of the uh, big active members in it. And in the late 1950s, that's really, you want to know about wages, productivity, prices. This is the group where they're coming together and talking about it. So that was finding those papers. That was, that was a real gold mine uh, for, for the book. Well, good research. I haven't heard someone mention that before. And those of you watching and want to look at those papers, Remember, you know, Hagley has them and we have research grants for your use if you want to come here to look at them. So, um, Samuel, any, you want to, any final words on how you might think your project is relevant for today? Because I obviously that, that that's in your mind. So why don't you tell yeah, us yeah. a bit about your thoughts? No, I, I think today I think that, you know, the lesson is, um, you know, we were so concerned for so many decades about the wage and price spiral, about uh, corporate market power. And again, I think the problem was where was the problem really? And what was just the syndrome of that problem? So today, I, you know, when you hear, uh, you know, again, you know, is there a concern about market power coming from the White House? Well, you have to stop and say, well, you know, in the 1960s, and 1970s, uh, this focus on businesses driving inflation, this focus on labor driving inflation, uh, diverted us from what was necessary to stop inflation. And it's only when we abandoned that view, it's only when we realized, you know, uh, monetary expansion, fiscal expansion are creating the incentives for wages and prices to increase, not the other way around. Uh, that was what was ultimately responsible for, for stopping this inflation. So I, I think that's my main takeaway is that, you know, um, and again, I don't, like, I don't like to do policy too heavy, but I do think that I will say it's important not to get distracted uh, when we're trying to identify the source of problems. I, I think that's a fair way to, to, phrase, uh, to phrase the conclusion of the book, that to, to I realize that not every symptom, not every outcome is uh, the actual cause of the problem. Very good. That's very, very useful. Well, well, Samuel, thank you for sitting with us. Thank you for talking yeah. about your no, this book. This has been great. You, thank you. I'm Peter Paypal. Uh, we will put this up soon, um, and you're welcome to link to it from your webpage and all that. And I'll let you know when it's up there. Uh, Thank you all for listening and stay tuned for more episodes of Hagley History Hangout coming soon to you. Bye-bye. Great. I've stopped. Wait, let me see. I have to stop the recording.